I mean, eventually it catches up with him. At the very end, it catches up with him, and, and he's stuck in a prison cell for the rest of his life. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are really excited to have you with us for the beginning of an amazing adventure. This season, we are doing a theme month, as we do every season. If you've joined us for the past, boy, however many years it's been now. Yeah, yeah. That's weird <laughs> however to many think about. years it's been. Multiple seasons. <laughs> We've we done it Multiple a lot. seasons. We do a theme month every, every season, right? Other than this month, we try to do really varied scripts, trying to talk Talk about different kinds of things every week. But there comes a month in every season where in one way or another, by one definition or another, we try to talk about the same thing for a month. Comparing yeah. scripts to each other that share something in common. Yeah, we've done uh, themed months around, you know, themes before. Uh, I think last season was a murder month. Um, we, we've we've done themes around playwrights before. We've done plays around times of theater history before with a series of, of Greek plays a couple seasons back. This season, we are returning to the form of themed month, which involves examining one playwright's work for four weeks in a row. And that playwright, this themed month, is David Henry Huang. That is right. This is going to be a really exciting month. I love David Henry Wong. He is just, I think, an incredible, imaginative, fantastic playwright. This is going to be great. The last time that we did this kind of themed month, where we spent a whole month on one playwright, was way back near the very beginning of this show. We did a Miller month. We spent a month talking about plays by Arthur Miller. So we figured, now that we were kind of back to the idea of doing a month of plays by the same playwright for our themed month that we ought to do a contemporary playwright yeah. rather than uh, a classic playwright since we'd already done that and there is hard to find a more influential still working today contemporary playwright than Mr. David Henry Huang Right, and with such an anthology of plays, many plays with uh, with with such kind of rich different types of plays to get to play with, that we get to uh, you know have really really uh, uh, great conversations, but with some really uh, vari variations in what we're talking about as as we engage them. So I'm excited for the plays we have lined up um, today. We are starting with uh, a very a very well known, very famous play by Huang. If you have heard of one of his plays, you have likely heard of M Butterfly, which is the play that we are discussing today. Yeah, I sometimes tell this story, and if you've heard it before, I apologize, but when I graduated high school all those years ago and I was saying, I'm going to go on and study theater is what I'm going to do with my life, I knew that, that I, there were some plays I just needed to read, but I didn't have a grasp of what those plays were. So I asked my high school drama teacher and other people in my life to just give me a stack of plays that are the plays I should read to begin my study of theater before I was ready to go into college theater. This play was one of the plays 
in that stack. These are of that sort of plays I should know at that point. And M Butterfly was on that list, so I read it then. I've read it many times since, and I'm excited to come back. As Jackson said, if you know a David Henry Huang play, you know this David Henry Huang play. This is the DHH play. Even all these years later, even after he's put out some really incredible scripts since then, M Butterfly remains the seminal work of his career thus far. Yeah, it was, it's a really important play when it came out. It's a really important play for a lot of different reasons, both the issues that it's discussing, discussing and the, the actors that have gotten to play the roles have, you know, oftentimes uh, gone on to do many other great things. So, so it's a great play, great play in theater history, but also a great contemporary play um, that continues to speak into the moment, even though it was written... Boy, it was written like 30 plus years ago, I think, so right? So long ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. still feels so contemporary. It does. I mean, partially yeah. because it's like a retelling and playing with historical events anyway. It, there's a little bit of timelessness to that quality of play. But uh, just the way he talks, well, we'll get into it. We're, we're stealing we'll from it, later uh, on in our conversation. It's true, it's true. <laughs> Before we get there, uh, it is time for us to ask you to consider heading on over to patreon.com slash noscript podcast that's all one word patreon.com slash no script podcast over there you can become a supporter of this show and our supporters on patreon are the ones that make sure no script podcast gets to happen this is a labor of love for us something we do because it is enjoyable not something that we do because we think it is valuable um, and not something that we do to get rich so we're we're, we're not uh, pocketing huge chunks of change off of patreon here it helps us run the show. It helps makes it financially possible for Jackson and I to put in the time commitment, the level of effort, and then just the practical money that goes into running a podcast, which so many folks out there now have a sense of what it takes to run a weekly podcast. So it just wouldn't be feasible for us without the folks over on Patreon. So if that's you, if you're a supporter of this show in terms of listening, enjoying, being part of the NoScript community, but you're not yet a financial supporter, I really really would encourage you to think about it on patreon the lowest tier is just a dollar a month twelve dollars a year total i really believe i said it many times that you are getting at least a dollar a month's worth of value on the time that you spend with us and if you agree with that but you're not yet supporting us i highly encourage you to think about it because those folks make this show possible they really really do we're fully supported by the folks on patreon and we couldn't be more grateful to them to the folks that are supporting us right now on patreon a huge thank you a shout out this themed month like all themed months is made possible by you and if you're not yet a financial supporter please think about it patreon.com slash no script podcast Yes, thank you all so much for heading over there. Thanks for all that you've done to help the podcast continue on. We will see you over there. And now, back to the script. All righty. So, we have done a David Henry Huang play before. We've done one other play, my favorite of the David Henry Huang library, a play called Yellow Face. I'm in the middle of a huge research project on Yellow Face, which connected me with some folks from the David Henry Huang academic world, which has been really fun. So, I love that play. We already got to have that conversation. And so, 
we're not going to revisit Yellowface this month, although that would be a blast. We're going to look at four different plays. Usually in the life of no script, we introduce the playwright when we do their first play. Uh, but because this is going to be a month of David Henry Huang plays, we figure it's probably worth it to reintroduce Mr. Huang and, and sort of who he is, how he shaped American drama. So uh, David Henry Huang is a, uh, an American playwright. He's a professor at Columbia University. He's the head of the playwriting program over there. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for M. Butterfly, Yellowface, and most recently for Soft Power, which is a play we'll discuss later on in this month. He's also a screenwriter. He writes lyrics for lots of musicals. You would recognize that he did the book for Aida. He did the screenplay book part of the movie Tarzan. Uh, and just uh, uh, really well lot. He's won many Obie Awards. He's won many fellowships, like a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a, a Rockefeller Fellowship. He is recognized not only by the, the American drama world, regardless of race, just in general. He was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame in 2018. He was named a Grandmaster of the American Theater by the Laura Pels International Foundation. He's on the board of dramatists. So recognized specifically for his contribution to American drama in a whole, but also for his representation of the Asian American community in American drama. And a great example of that is that the oldest Asian American theater company in America named their main stage after David Henry Wong, a contemporary playwright, a living playwright, still producing stuff, which is very unusual to have that kind of honor uh, while, while you're still alive. So he has really shaped not just the specifics of Asian American drama in, in America, but also the bigger conversations that are happening in America around what drama is going to be, what stories are we going to tell, and how are we going to tell those stories. His theatrical imagination, his playfulness with the audience, his playfulness with self on stage in Yellowface, and later when we talk about soft power, we'll see that too, have been hugely influential to the scope of what theater is. He, he's a contemporary playwright that just excites me. I just love picking up a DHH play because I know what I'm going to find inside is inventive, impa is impactful emotionally, and in the way that the storytelling happens. Yeah, and, and it's just so so rich and varied. In addition to all the things that you mentioned, he's also a librettist uh, and and uh, has done multiple uh, uh, operettas and and uh, librettos for uh, like Philip Glass is, that he's partners with. So yeah, it's just great to to be able to engage with some of his his work. And and this play is no exception of that. There's a lot of music in this play, and I'm excited to get to jump into that conversation uh, a little bit later. But first, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context for this play uh, just to get us started and on the same foot. This play uh, debuted in February 10th of 1988 at Washington, D.C.'s National Theater. That production had uh, starred John Lithgow and B.D. Wong, and that's the production that eventually moved to Broadway to the Eugene O'Neill Theater um, in, in March of 1988. Uh, David Henry Huang wrote this play based on a true event, um, and uh, he, he heard about it in, in May of 1986 and started to work up this story uh, about a 
French diplomat who lived out a very similar story. Now, this is not a uh, not a documentary piece. There, there are not necessarily facts in this play about that tr- that real situation. In fact, I believe I remember it. that he deliberately didn't research the real life story. He just like saw the newspaper headline and was so fascinated by the story that the headline told that he deliberately didn't look any more into it. And he just wanted to write yeah. that play based on the headline. Yeah, I have a, there's a great quote in my author's notes here from from uh, from him that says, I suspected there was a play here. I purposely refrained from further research for I was not interested in writing docudrama. Frankly, frankly I didn't want the truth to interfere with my own speculations. Um, and that's just a great way for to to engage the play. You hear the hear the headline based on true events and and it continues from there. The play itself um, has had just a rich uh, story uh, uh, path since then. Um, certainly multiple productions. It played on Broadway. Broadway, as I mentioned before, it was made into a film in 1993, directed by David Cronenberg. Um, that uh, film starred Jeremy Irons and John Lone in the two leading roles. Um, it also had a, a recent production in 2017 in the Broadway re- revival. That production starred Clive Owen and Jin Hu as uh, as as the main roles, and uh, Julie Taymor directed that production. So so yeah, uh, lots lots and lots of, of of continued productions for this play. There's uh, extensive notes in the back of the play. Uh, that, that help regional houses do this show well. Um, this this play continues to be produced and and produced in in many different ways. I think 2022 this year, um, the Santa Fe Opera is doing an, an opera of it, um, uh, another rendition of M Butterfly. So it continues to be produced, continues to be engaged with, and 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 more and more more and more people come to continue to come to the play. Yeah, there's a, another great story about it because it only relates to the context, really, that, that when he originally conceived the show, uh, it, he conceived it as a musical, and that's how he was pitching it and producing it. But he just got so excited to write the story that he like didn't want to take the time to collaborate with the composer, so he just wrote <laughs> yeah. it as a straight play instead, and he was worried that it would not get produced because he had pitched it to the producer as a musical, and then he came back with the straight play only. But this producer was so excited by the straight play that he wanted to open it right on Broadway. And that should tell you something about this script. (laughs) How (laughs) fantastically awesome this script is that that story is part of its life and it still managed to be what it is. So, um... M. Butterfly, of course, you can already tell by the title, is in some ways a playing on the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly, which is uh, famously the uh, an opera which is, especially nowadays, much uh, maligned for its portrayal of uh, Asian women as the sort of submissive, go-along-with-the-white-western-hero uh, sort of characters and that the the bravery the courage that is supposedly shown by the uh, main woman in the play is really only bravery and courage in giving up her life for the love of this white westerner and um, as the as Madame Butterfly has evolved in its cultural perceptions 
as our sense of uh, equity on in stage representations of people around the globe has evolved. Those two things have sort of evolved in tandem, which, which makes sense given that life. And so M. Butterfly is a play that plays on the stereotypes that are established in Madam Butterfly. And indeed, uh, much of the first chunk of this play is a sort of contemporary, tongue-in-cheek retelling of of Madam Butterfly. And and the main character, Jackson, you're going to have to help me. This is how bad I am at pronunciation. I've already forgotten. How are we <laughs> pronouncing this guy's name? Rene Gallimard. Gallimard. Rene Gallimard. I'm going to call him Galli or Rene or something. There's no <laughs> way I'm going to be able to say that. I'm real bad at this. Okay, so Rene Gallimard is a French diplomat. He is uh, stationed in China uh, as uh, he works in the ambassador's office, basically, in the embassy. And he meets one day uh, viewing in, in like a sort of what I think we would think of as like a cabaret. It was just like songs from the opera. Uh, he sees uh, a woman named Song, ostensibly a woman named Song, performing the final song from Madame Butterfly. In the final song of Madame Butterfly, the lead character in that show kills herself because her husband and longtime lover, a white Western diplomat of his own frame, is not going to come back to her. And so she kills herself. And that's the bravery and courage she displays. That's why the show has had such controversy, especially as theater has changed and grown and developed. Da-da-da-da-da. Renee Gallimar meets Song. She is performing this piece. Um, and they begin a romance. And this romance is, to some degree, based on the power relationship between Gallimar and Song. There's a great sort of extended scene where he realizes that she is interested in him, and so he deliberately ignores her for weeks and weeks and weeks to sort of test what uh, how this relationship is going to function if she's going to keep coming back to him. You can sort of see the, the problematic, let's call it, nature of their relationship, and already how Huang is playing on the matter. Adam Butterfly story. Eventually, uh, Song and Gallimar become uh, more of a romantic item. She sort of formally becomes... Uh, so he calls her his butterfly, right? In reference to Madam Butterfly. And, and this is also becomes a sort of label for their relationship. She's his mistress, you know. Gallimar is married, but he sort of calls her his wife, but not in a legal sense where they're going to get married. Um... So the the story their their romance evolves right. Eventually, Gallimard is uh, is going to be sent away from China. His his advice, you know, his foreign affairs advice, basically, which is an, in large part based on his song and his relationship. And song is this very sort of submissive, loving, shy, modest uh, Chinese woman to his mind. Um, and so his foreign advice on, on cultural affairs in China and especially in Vietnam is just based on his sense of like Western dominance and the affection that the Chinese must have for the West because of the relationship that he believes he has with Song. And he's, he gives all this advice and of course it doesn't pan out. And so he's sent away from China back to France um, and uh, Song ends up following him to France. He divorces his wife and I don't think he ever formally 
Mary Mary's song, but they lived together for 20 years. In this time, he believes that they have a child. Um, she goes away for several months at some point in this relationship to uh, to have her pregnancy and have the child um, and, and commits to never, never raising the child in the West eventually. Of course, they lived together for like 20 years in France. And at the end of the play is revealed, and this is where the newspaper headline comes in, that all along... Song, this Chinese woman who he's been married to had a sexual or sexual relationship with, really from the almost the beginning of their relationship, uh, has been a man all along in disguise as a Chinese woman, and has in fact been pumping him for information for his, from this the the position that he held in the embassy in China, and then he ends up getting himself into a more prominent position in the French government when he moves back and she moves in with him, and she has been basically a spy all along. And so the structure of this play is that René Gallimard is in prison uh, for being a traitor to the French government. And he is telling the audience the story of how he came to be here and the story of his butterfly, his perfect woman, who ended up being a man. Um, so all throughout the play, we the, the, the secret that she's a spy is not one that's held for very long in the play. We learn very early that she's passing on information, but it is at the uh, like the second of the three act breaks that it is revealed that she is actually a he and that he is a man having been in disguise as a woman. So how did that work exactly? Well, that is part of the storytelling of the play is like there's a whole extended courtroom scene where Song is interrogated like, how did he not know that you were a woman? But you had sex, right? I mean, like, how, how could this possibly have been? And the lights were always off. She always displayed herself as this modest, never wanting to take off all of her clothes. She was always doing the sexual acts. Uh, but, it, you know, there's some trickery that was involved. There's a great pairing of lines. Are you sure he never believed that you're... Are you sure he believed that you were a woman the whole time? And Song says, like, well, you know, I never asked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a fascinating element of like when when does everyone know everything? <laughs> um, because right away at the top of the play we get a, a scene uh in in the prison. Uh, Galimar is is kind of talking about uh, his life in the prison, and there's there's this brief scene uh with with like the French public talking about him, and they're they're already in that scene marveling that he didn't know that language is oblique. Um, we it's not it's not specific. We don't know exactly what he didn't know, but it it is. Heavily implied with lines like, um, so what? He never touched her with his hands. Perhaps he did and simply misidentified the equipment. That sort of thing is is happening right away There's in the first scene. So we're quite a bit of tongue-in-cheek sexual humor throughout yeah. the play. Yeah, and, and, and that sort of element uh, adds into some of watching uh, Gallimar sort of stumble into this. We're, 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 we're along with, we're in on some part of the joke a little bit as, as the play goes on, um, uh, watching him sort of make the mistake. We're at least hinted into, into it very early on. Yeah, and I mean, I just want to reiterate that they lived together for twenty years. Twenty years. This is not years. a brief fling. This, <laughs> this, yeah. uh, this disguise, this trick, ha is pulled off for twenty years, which seems impossible. Uh, and again, you know, David Henry Hong did not do extensive research into the real story that this is based on. This is his imagining, and the question is asked in the courtroom sing scene of Song, uh, how. How did this happen? How could you have convinced him for 20 years that he that you are a woman? I mean, how could that even possibly be? 
And Song provides the answer, which is, I think, a lot of Huang's commentary, uh, at least to some level, in the play, about how, it, in part, it worked because Gallimard wanted it to work. He had a sense of, uh, basically, a stereotype of Chinese women, of Asian women, based on the Japanese character from Madame Butterfly, which is pointed out and mocked early in the play. But he had this picture in his head of the perfect woman being this shy, submissive Asian woman who was going to bend to his every whim, who loved him immensely, was willing to give her whole life for him. And because Song was willing to be that, he never, he wanted to believe it, is basically how she puts it. In yeah. their in their describing of the Madame Butterfly opera, that sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, contemporary retelling of it that happens at the beginning, they're describing the play, right, and, and how the, the woman in Madame Butterfly is the – there's a line where it basically says, she was the feminine ideal. And then in like the next sentence or two, the, they describe the man for whom she gives up everything, right? So to Gallimar, the feminine ideal is a woman who will give up everything for a man. And because Song was willing to be that as part of this extensive stunt that she was pulling on him, he does not question. He is willing to believe. He suspends his disbelief, really, to use a theatrical term. And there's so much in this play, right, about performance and theater alongside this this sort of strange story. Yeah, there's a lot of like question, uh, especially later on in the play, when the, when the when the court case comes up, but also some of Gallimard's own reflection um, and wondering when exactly he knew. And, and whether, you know, at what point, you know, certainly at what point did, did he know and just decide in himself to, to believe something else, to be, um, to, to kind of believe this story that he had told himself, to believe the story that was being told to him. And in that way, it's kind of fascinating that the roles are almost... Um, are, are reversed. The final scene is a huge reversal of the roles. He kind of becomes um, uh, the butterfly in the in the final scene, putting on the the robes that have been discarded um, by by a song and and kind of becoming the butterfly himself. Yeah, and and that's really that that was the initial idea for the structure of this play. As soon as Huang, I mean, this is just according to his telling of it. As soon as he landed on this headline being the inspiration for a new play, the next step was him sort of discovering that it was going to be a play on Madame Butterfly, the famous Puccini opera, and that he was going to structure it that way. There would be a man at the beginning who thought he found his butterfly, but by the end of the play realizes he is the butterfly character from Madame Butterfly. Right. And 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 seeing Song's uh uh efficient manipulation of of that narrative in in him and how you know we find out halfway through the play that that he's in fact a spy who is 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 bringing bringing all this information out of him and continues to play into this character as much as he can um uh even going to the point that that he manages to convince Gallimard that he is pregnant um and and comes back with a child of his months yeah. later um, so so it's 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 like you know it's 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 a it's a long process and it's uh yeah with the role reversal with this kind of character who willingly willingly or unwillingly is blind to what's happening to him um and this 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 character of song who is able to see that and and present the narrative convincingly enough as an actor um to to manipulate him into uh his goals 
there's this scene in the middle of the play where Song is meeting with a an agent of the Chinese government. And this agent has all these questions throughout the play. They meet several times about, like, how are you pulling this off? And the the language is sort of deliberately veiled so that if you're experiencing the story for the first time and you don't already know that Song is a man, you're not necessarily going to be tipped off to this early on. There are certainly clues, and you certainly could figure it out, but it's not like from right away this, this character from the government is like, you're a man, how are you getting this information out of him? But there, there's some confusion about how this trick is working it's the confusion that's asked throughout the whole play right and and so that song basically makes a metaphor of it and says uh you know this here here's why on the chinese stage all the women characters are made by men do you know why here's why and the quote is only a man knows how a woman is supposed to act and to me that is that's such a great line in context of the overall play this idea that only a man could present another man with the perfect stereotype that fit every piece of what he wanted. And I think that the, the supposition behind it, of course, and, and of course, this is true, I'm not saying anything, anything wild here, right, is that women, as human beings, never fit every stereotype, you know, every, every imagining, right. every role, all of this stuff that men want to put on women. But as a man pretending to be a woman for the sake of another man, he knows not just how a woman's supposed to act like there's like a given role, but how that man expects a woman to act in the right. relationship with him. It, it, it's a, a deliberately sexist <laughs> comment by the yes. playwright. Another issue that the playwright is, is bringing out is that um, for for the male audience, the this male actor knows exactly how to portray this stereotype for the male audience. Um, and so it, it fits perfectly within uh, Gallimard's expectation, both uh, in, in in a sexist way and in, in the kind of uh, racial stereotype that Gallimard carries into the relationship. And, and David Henry Huang, especially as we think about this whole theme month, is really interested in this idea of performative identity and how when you perform an identity that is not your own, how that is rooted in stereotype. Of course, Yellowface is about Yellowface acting, the practice of white actors playing Asian characters. And you see a similar thing happen when you think about that discussion, right? We have these a sort of... Uh, historic Asian roles written by white people and historically performed by white people. And you really could apply the same logic to those roles, right? Only a white person knows how an Asian person is supposed to act might be the version of that quote that fits that racial performative. And of course, that doesn't mean that's how Asian people are supposed to act. But the idea is only a white person can fully portray the Asian stereotype that white people hold, which is why historically many of these Asian characters have been played by white people. Yeah, yeah. In in the author's notes, uh, Huang uh, talks about how the kind of there's a kind of uh, subversive thing at work in this play, <laughs> a subversive element of this play where it presents these stereotypes and even down to the setting of the play with these sort of uh, he he uses the words. Uh, uh, we, we in the West have a certain vision of the Orient. You can't see my air quotes, but they're there. Which rev, which revels in exotica and lush beauty, and and the subversive thing in presenting it is is once you present it, you then get 
get the audience to engage with a question, which is why are we why are we so drawn to this, especially uh, a Western audience? Why are we so drawn to this? Why are we taking such pleasure in watching this sort of rich, lush stage stuff? All these beautiful costumes, uh, the 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 various uh, songs and the characteristics and the stereotypes that are being drawn out by Gallimard. Um, all of these things are are being interrogated by the play, are being uh, drawn out of the uh, Western theater audience and and uh, kind of forcing that audience to examine for themselves why why those stereotypes exist inside of them. Yeah, totally. And and right in that vein, it's fascinating to me how the, the, there's the initial interaction scene between Gallimard and Song, right? They meet when Song is performing the final song from Madame Butterfly. She performs it. They meet afterwards, right? And Gallimard says, I loved that. I love that musical. It's so impactful. And Song has all of these critical things to say about the Madame Butterfly opera, about its stereotyping, all this stuff. And it's interesting to me. I don't know exactly where I land on this to to figure out whether already from that moment Song has been recruited by the Chinese government to play a woman and ensnare Gallimard or if because they form this connection then she she begins to 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 pass on government secrets I'm not sure because right when they have this discussion about Madame Butterfly after she performs the song one of her quotes is she's right she's criticizing the opera all along right and she says it's one of your favorite fans fantasies, isn't it? The submissive oriental woman and the cruel white man, which is interesting. This is an interesting quote. She's criticizing Madame Butterfly for that. But that, of course, becomes the long term strategy for 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 succeeding in her trick of him, in her long term deception in passing on these government secrets is relying on that fantasy of his. Yeah, it's it's interesting to kind of wonder around that that original meeting and wonder around when exactly Song is either um, approached by the government to be a spy because of her relationship or not because Song has has a, a, a theater career that 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 he's going through he's 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 uh, there's he's he, certainly this event that he put on for the embassy um, is is an important one but he also has a, a specifically Chinese opera that he's a part of that he consistently invites Galimar to to come and and see so it's 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 interesting to kind of it's a, it's an element that you don't really get to know in the play um, how long uh he's, he's been spying for the government but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question something that you know flavors that first moment i think for the for the actor even playing song um how how uh how much of a sting operation is it from the beginning how much is it this sort of moment of genuine connection between them um that is then kind of used uh, by his connection to the to the government to to bring out the information and I think there's enough in the text for you to sort of wonder either way with support, right? In the conversation I've already mentioned between Song and the Chinese government official, Song mentions that in the in the Chinese Peking opera, the women's roles are played by men. And so it's not necessarily the case that she was performing that piece for Madame Butterfly. He was performing that piece for Madame Butterfly deliberately to deceive Gallimard into believing he was this Chinese actress uh, it could just be that he was he's a male actor who performs the women roles in the Chinese Peking Opera and Gallimard right. just doesn't understand that even yeah. from the very beginning. And that coincidence lands him in trouble and her with an opportunity to begin this deception. Yeah, that I mean, that, that certainly sort of 
plays into some of the of what uh, Gallimar is uh, flavored towards. It was interesting to like look at a couple different uh, uh, renditions of the role of Gallimar. John Lithgow has you know a, ver- a little bit more of the comedic bent. He's kind of talking to the audience a lot, sort of back and forth. Then you go and watch like I watched a couple scenes from the movie, and Jeremy Irons, of course, brings this like very real <laughs> genuineness <laughs> to Gallimar, and it was like, oh wow, this is different. <laughs> so it's interesting to try to play with you know how much just kind of goes over Gallimar's head, um, especially in in this in in the script itself, because there's there's a lot that he just doesn't get about the culture, even though he's supposed to be this this expert on the culture. That's the role that he's invited into is to uh, try to be an expert on the culture and how the culture will respond, especially to uh, the um, American War in Vietnam. And that expertise while really having some ignorance, I, I, I don't know, maybe this is this might be a sort of esoteric conversation, but it's interesting to me personally because I have such an affection for the play and I, I, I am for sure that Jackson has no idea what I'm about to say. So this is fascinating. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I have I'm such on. affection <laughs> for the play Amadeus by Peter Schaefer. Whoa, I, okay, I love yeah, yeah. that play. I performed as Salieri when I was very young and I'm sure did a terrible job because I was too young to play the part. But so, so it goes, right? But so I, I love Amadeus and I would be fascinated if I ever had the opportunity to interview David Henry Huang to prompt him a little bit about how much of this play in structure and in the way it relates to the audience and talks about the characters is inspired by Amadeus. There's a framing structure in both that is so similar this person uh, in a bad situation later in their life, right? Uh, Gallimard is in jail. Salieri has landed in the sanatorium. Looking back on the story of how it got there, there is this element of their expertise and ignorance being handled all in once and causing their destruction, right? Uh, uh, Salieri believes he's a musical genius, discovers that he has so much ignorance and, and no real musical talent at all. Of course, uh, Gallimard thinks he understands, I'm going to use his phrase, right? The oriental, like, psyche. And David Henry Hong, of course, mocks that, shows the real ignorance he had. And there's so many more little tidbits like that, the way they interact with the audience and make fun of themselves as they go on. This idea that they're famous at the beginning of the show, this is what initially inspires me, is the way that Guy Mar talks about his fame being sort of a, a mockery and a wondering is very similar to how Salieri talks about his fame and a mocking and a wondering. And then there's this <laughs> moment in the middle of the play that both Salieri and Gallimar have, where they say, I've done something bad. In Salieri's case, I think he has an affair. In Gallimar's phase, uh, 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 he, I think it might also be the affair, actually. But I, but there's this moment where he says, God should punish me because I've done this thing that's bad. And instead, they both find career success. And they both come to the same idea that, like, God is not going to punish me for doing things badly, so I might as well do bad things. And I I don't know, there's just something about both of these plays, there's a similarity in the protagonist that was just, has struck me, especially this this time through and Butterfly, that I'm not sure I ever really uh, marked before. Well, and that's just, just such a fascinating uh, element of of uh, Gallimard's story because at that moment when he realized like nothing bad is happening to him, um, though he continues to kind of do these things, uh, whether that's uh, for for him uh, having this affair outside of his his marriage or having a, an additional affair on on top of that with with uh, another po- woman with from the Denmark embassy. Um, each each of these things, uh, nothing bad happens to him yet, and so he like develops this persona for himself. 
And in fact, him. he gets career advancement. He yeah. like gets promoted right when he thinks something bad's about to happen. And it's specifically because of this persona that he's creating for himself of this someone who like is more stereotypically westerns, more uh, domineering and and ruder in general, and taking advantage of of people around him. So so that's that sort of like turn is is really interesting to kind of notice the similarities, as you said, um, from Amadeus and and Salieri, but but then certainly the sort of. Uh, no consequences for uh, action uh, that 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 hurts people um, continues him down this road until eventually. I mean, eventually it catches up with him. At the very end, it catches up with him, and and he's stuck in a prison cell for the rest of his life. And also, he's for not only that, but he's forced to examine himself um, and and realize to some degree the the level to which he's been played um, just unbeknownst to him as he's sort of invented this persona for himself. Well, and that, that's an interesting take because that is not what he says he's doing, right? As he tells this story, yeah. he sets it up that, you know, he says something to the effect of, every night I go back through this story and try to find a different ending. Try to find a way where I can still end up with this perfect woman, which really is just a fantasy. Of course, that's part of the commentary. The perfect woman was fake all along. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so yeah, certainly, certainly that that kind of earlier scene sets him up as kind of wandering through this story again for himself. I think the moment of the laughter is an in- interesting moment. There's a moment yes. um, where where uh, of course a, a rather famous scene at the very end of the play song uh, is is uh, in in Gallimard's imagination is kind of. Uh, uh, directly arguing with him and trying to get him to face the fact that Song is a man, something that Gallimard continues to uh, not say and not admit to. And uh, Song ends up stripping off all of his clothing and forcing him to look at him completely naked to to get him, in again, in his, imagin- in his imagination, but to get him to see the truth. And, and Gallimard's response is this, um, uh, I'll just read the stage direction because it's, 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 it's somewhat powerful. Slowly, we and Song come to the realization that what we have thought to be Gallimard's sobbing is actually his laughter. So it's that kind of a laughter, a laughter that can be mistaken as a sob. Um, and he just bursts into this sort of out of place laughter. And that's always a fascinating theatrical element when a character just laughs and and uh, oddly laughs. <laughs> um, I think that those are moments that I tend to zone in on and, and have a lot of interest in because something's going on that's broken them a little bit, that has kind of brought them to a point that something is changed for for the character. Um. And, and strangely, uh, I think you almost could make the case, uh, I, uh, this probably doesn't hold up in any sort of practical reality, but I think you could almost make the case that the play doesn't start for reals until song strips at the end. And here's what I mean by that. In drama, we're always asking this question, right? Like, why today? Why are we watching this play Mm. today? What's different about today is a common way to phrase that question. And we learn from the beginning of the show that going back through this story and re-understanding it, examining it, looking for a new ending is something Gallimar does all the time. Now, it's the audience's first time through the backstory, but in the present moment of the play, Gallimar in prison, in his imagination, figuring out what happened, looking for a new ending, this is the first time that what? 
what? What's the first time that something's happened? It's the first time that Song actually takes off his clothes. There's this line that goes just a little bit under the radar. He's Song is threatening to take off his clothes to reveal that he truly is a man, right, by showing him the body part. And Galamar says, every night you say you're going to strip, but then I beg you and you stop. So this playing over in his imagination where Song lords the fact that he hasn't shown him the actual body part to prove that he is indeed, has indeed been a male all along. That is what's different about today is that today (laughs) Song actually reveals it and that causes the end of the play to happen today rather than any other day. So you almost could say structurally that everything up until that point, all 60 of 80 pages, 60 of uh, or 70 of 80 pages is backstory leading up to that moment where now the real drama begins, the real present moment. What's going to happen? Something is different now that hasn't ever happened before. And how is this character going to respond? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's a fascinating take to kind of like have the main, a- yeah, the main action of the play is is right there at the end. And certainly from the audience perspective of the ride that we've been on, it feels like um, these, you know, it's these two characters and this is the change that this character absolutely does it. It's a fascinating extra step to remember, though, that this is all in Gallimar's head. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. that, that this is that this is somewhat to some degree it's Gallimar uh, structuring this encounter for himself to to work out something because he's in a prison cell by himself um, and he says in this scene that you know like, like like the line that you read I over and over every night I I ask you to take your clothes off and and then eventually talk myself out of it um, so so it's that it's that, that that interesting element of this sort of interior interrogation that is happening for Gallimar um, in this last scene that, that we that we see this intense moment between this them and this intense uh, this intense realization for for Gallimar that is that is forced onto him through song. So let's just spend a few minutes here, and I will say to the folks listening out there that we're going to spend the next couple of minutes talking openly about suicide. So if this is a part of the conversation you'd rather skip, go ahead and hit the forward 30-second button or whatever a couple of times, and you'll safely miss us. I don't think we'll spend too long here. But I think it's an interesting question because this play, as you've mentioned, is very internal. It's about Gallimar reimagining and describing to the audience. Right? It also has that theatrical live element. What happened to him? And then things change at the end when Song actually reveals the body part, says, here's for sure, you're confronted with the truth. But all that is inside Galmar's head. So the question has to be asked, right? Is the suicide internal or external? Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um... It's an interesting scene the way it's structured because he's finally alone mostly on stage um, in that last scene. Um, he's he's there's some uh, really interesting dance uh, that that happens around him with some characters that uh, help him kind of put on uh, the the kimono that has been left by Song um, and kind of walk him through this this uh, blocking uh, for for um, for his he, he uh, takes up the seppuku position. There's a there's a knife on stage that he's that he wields against himself. Um, eventually, Song does appear, but in an upstage sort of way, in a kind of pre-established other space, um, watching what has happened. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question as to whether or not... Um, he, he has this line that says, truth demands a sacrifice. Um, so, so to what stage or to what extent 
does uh, Gallimard go to to enact that sacrifice and is uh, on on himself um is it is that finally his admission to himself um versus his public lack of admission because to the public he continues to deny um that he ever knew um but is in this moment the sacrifice something physical or is the sacrifice something uh j- just the fact that he's willing to admit finally that he was wrong that he that he misunderstood the situation and I think the admission is bigger than that, too. Uh, you know, the sort of the present action of the play is him coming to the realization, coming to the admission that Song indeed was a man and not a woman ever, which means coming to the admission that the perfect woman was always fake in reality and now only exists in my head. And that's what he ends up laughing about when Song finally reveals his naked body is actually what you've done is you've stopped me from torturing myself. And again, he's talking to his own brain here, but he said, you know, the the argument is basically now I don't have to live in this desperate reality that you really were a woman all along. I can lean into the idea that this only ever happened in my imagination and of course push that all the way to the extreme and choose to, through the suicide, sort of metaphorically live in my imagination and in the fantasy forever and always. And so the, the, uh, the, the admission that Song was a man really is an admission that his construct of reality is not reality and that he'd rather live in the imagined world where this shy, submissive, obedient, highly sexualized, but only in a loyal, submissive way, woman uh, only is, 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 a, is an imagination fantasy and that I prefer that to reality. And the cognitive dissonance of I prefer my fantasy to the reality is one of the things that maybe spurs this dramatic action at the end. Well, and spurs the realization that the reality is is that he's the butterfly, at least in the in the 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 uh, the 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 structure of the argument that this play is making. He is he is the butterfly. There's a, there's a, a, a just a, a killer line at the end of this um, scene where where he's talking about the devastating knowledge that underneath it all, the object of her love, the butterfly's love, was nothing more, nothing less than a man. Um, is is just a powerful line as he as he is kind of realizing that the role was reversed the whole time that he was the butterfly the whole time and, and his this... the person he was in love with is going to is abandoning him mm-hmm. and that that the just like the woman in Madame Butterfly she has this fantasy of him coming back to her and the family living together forever his fantasy of being with the fake butterfly that he's been in this relationship with for twenty years is just a fantasy of them living together as a family and that will never happen. Yeah, yeah, it's this, it's this, it's this whole domino effect of you know once that once that scene happens, once the one thing that changes the day happens, and and it's and uh, song reveals to him in an impossible to deny way that he is a man. Um, yeah, it's it's just a, a series of events that then drives him through that scene, and I I don't really I mean. I don't know whether it's it's uh, metaphysical or not. It's not again. It's this is not something that you go and look at the facts of the actual event and get you know something concrete. This is something to interpret as you leave the theater. Again, one of those great things: these retinal images at the end of a play that you continue to see, continue to talk about, bring with you to you know whatever uh, after after the theater thing you do and talk about and and process uh, what what the play has made you feel. And it's it's a. Th- 
I love, and this is what David Henry Hong does in just such a magnificent way. And he's one of my favorite playwrights because his theatrical imagination and the way that I think about theater, I think, are so aligned. Because what we experience in Madame Butterfly is an inherently theatrical experience. It's something that happens on stage in front of us, and it is playing with other stage stories in the experience of, uh, uh, of, Jer- of oh gosh, I've forgotten his name, Gallimard taking on the story of the Madame Butterfly opera and living it out on stage in front of us, it is a an experience that is about the stage. And I know that there's a movie made about it, but it is not the same thing as yeah. the live experience of M. Butterfly, the experience of the storytelling being about the 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 this being about the stage, right? Not just about this story. Does he kill himself? Does he not kill himself in reality at the end? It's not so much about that. It's about the image, the bringing in. It's about the awe, the amazing quality of him taking on the ending of Madame Butterfly for himself. I mean, it's just, it's brilliantly theatrical. Yeah, brilliant reversal. And all the while weaving in the, you know, if you're familiar with the opera, um, weaving that information into it, weaving in so many compelling themes around uh, stereotypes and evaluation of of people's stereotypes. Just it's just such such a rich play. And it's so many more things that we could talk about. Um, Alas, we are running down to the end of the time that we have to uh, talk about this play. So excited that we had the chance to. It's been obviously it's been on our radar for a very long time. Excited that it's kicking off our themed month. Um, Fortunately, we don't have to stop talking about this play at this point. We'd love to keep talking about M. Butterfly with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Hey, join us next week for another David Henry Huang play and every week for the next three weeks for David Henry Huang plays throughout the month of April. This will be incredible. Please pass us on to your family, your friends. You can send them to Podbean where we're hosted. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. If you like us on Facebook, you'll be connected enough to see a link to the new episode appear every Monday and especially for the next three Mondays as we continue this journey through the uh, at least abbreviated library of David Henry Wong. Yeah, yeah. So get excited for next week. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. <laughs>